it does seem like Christmas is really on the way. And uh, I'm excited. I absolutely love, love Christmas. And uh, next week, of course, it is the carol service. And, uh, you know, honestly, as the guy said, if, um, as um, Ollie said, you know, it really is so worth bringing your friends to. They're going to have an amazing time. But before all the celebrations get underway, I felt it would be good to just remind ourselves that there are some of you here, maybe some of you at home watching online, that for whom Christmas is actually going to be quite difficult. Last Friday, John um, attended the funeral of one of our friends. Son had died. Um, he was diagnosed with a brain tumor in October, and on November the eighth, he died, leaving uh, a young widow and a young baby behind. And I cannot imagine what kind of a Christmas they're going to be having this year. Last week, Susie spoke on God's promises. Promises that we, we can be absolutely certain of. But what about those promises that you think God may have spoken to you about? Things that you've treasured in your heart that you thought might come to pass and, and yet you're living with a sense of disappointment, a sense of frustration that they, they didn't happen. What do we do when we have a problem, an unanswered prayer, when we're longing for Jesus to open a door that's closed or calm a particular storm that we're in when we need an answer and the answer doesn't come. How do we respond? I wonder if you've ever been with somebody who's dying. I remember a couple of summers ago, we were with a family who were not believers. They had no faith in Jesus and they'd been told by the consultants that really it was time to switch the life support machine off. And they were clinging on, clinging on. They couldn't bring themselves to turn the machines off. I think of a couple of girls that I was with whose mother was dying. And they were, they were just such faithful, wonderful women. Women of God. And, and um, just being with them, it was so inspiring as they um, were with their mother. And yet, at the same time, it just felt like she was too young, too young to go, too young to leave them. And then this morning, Lizzie Lacey was with us here, uh, worshipping with us. Lizzie was married to John Lacey. And uh, when their little girls were quite young, uh, John was diagnosed with cancer. And, you know, if ever there was a family, if ever there was a man who would believe that he would get healed, who had faith for healing, it was John Lacey. I mean, he was one of those possibility thinkers. Any problem was, was, could be resolved and uh, I remember we, we gathered around, we prayed for him. His small group prayed for him. We anointed him with oil. Time and again, we prayed as a church. Different people prayed. We said to them, look, go everywhere and anywhere. You know, you, you, you really need to go where there, there might be a healing center or a conference on healing or something around. Go, go. And yet, as time passed, he wasn't getting well. He was actually getting worse and worse. And the day came when we actually had to go and see him in hospital and, and have that difficult conversation. John, are you, are you ready to die? Are you ready to go and be with the Lord? Have you made preparations? And it was a really difficult conversation. But we also said, John, if you do die, shall we try and raise you from the dead? Shall we try and bring you back to life? And he said, yes, yes, absolutely. And I remember we went to see him a couple of days before he actually died. And he was in in their bedroom, um, Lizzie, who's a doctor, she was nursing him at home, and 
The room was just filled with an atmosphere of angels. It was just beautiful. The worship was playing and she was doing such an amazing job. And we prayed with John and, and, and I had this tinge of hope, faith, something could happen, anything could happen. And yet a couple of days later, we had that phone call from Lizzie to say that he, he'd, gone, he'd gone to be with the Lord. And, and we said, Lizzie, can we, can we come round and try and raise him from the dead? And she said, yes, come. And so we went round and Susie came with us and Paul Lowe and Tom and John and I. And honestly, we called out, we cried out to the Lord, but we also called out to John, 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 your family needs you. Come back, wake up, come back to life. Don't go. And everything, we, we honestly, we, we really went for it. And we had faith. We honestly couldn't have had more faith. This, if anybody was going to be raised from the dead, it would be John Lacey. But no, his body was an empty shell. He, he really was with the Lord. And we're left with those questions. You know, why? Why don't you do something, God? This summer, we were on holiday in Kent with... Um, my son and my eldest son and his wife, Lizzie, and our two grandsons. And uh, we, John and I, we had a very restful night, one of the nights, and we got up in the morning, and there was Lizzie. She was shattered because one of our grandsons had been awake all night with nightmares. And he was crying out, and she said, it didn't seem right. It didn't seem right to leave him. And it doesn't seem right, does it? How can it be that we're crying out, crying out, and Jesus doesn't sort it, and God doesn't do something? Well, I want this morning to look at the account of the story of Lazarus. It's written by John, and it's in chapter 11. I'm not going to read the whole story. I'm not going to um, kind of, you know, read it all. It's a long story. It's, there's lots of detail, but I'm going to recount as we go along. Lazarus is sick. And his sisters, Mary and Martha, have sent word to Jesus. And Jesus is in another village. It's about an hour, maybe just over an hour away, walking distance. And yet, instead of quickly reacting, he stays where he is. Two more days. He didn't come. He waited. Imagine... Imagine you're encountering a problem, a situation that's really bad. It may not be the war in Ukraine. It may not be a famine in Africa. It may not be a world crisis, but it's your crisis. It's the problem that you're immersed in. It's in your home. It's in your head. It's something you can't get away from. You can't get free of it. And yet you love Jesus. You have faith in Jesus and you're calling out to him. You know, people who love Jesus still have problems, still experience crises. And those same people can still experience a, a seeming lack of response. It's as if he doesn't care and you're asking yourself, why? Why is God allowing this? We're a, a really close family. Our two sons, my wonderful daughters-in-law, they're like best friends. And uh, two grandsons, another one on the way. And a couple of years ago, Jordan, our youngest, announced to us that he was going to live in America for good. And all of a sudden, my vision of the future was totally shattered. Everything I imagined, growing old with my sons and daughters-in-law around, my, my grandchildren, all of them close by, involved in their lives, picking them up from school, you know, at least seeing them uh, regularly. It was all shattered, and I remember just being really sad, really sad. 
I'm still sad, to be honest. And I came across a a T.D. Jake's teaching, and he was speaking on the story of Lazarus. And and I opened the chapter, chapter 11 in in John's Gospel, and and I just immersed myself in it. And I could see these, these incredible things that really began to speak to me. When bad or sad things happen, when you don't get the answer that you are hoping for, what's going on here? What is going on? And I think the first thing I saw here is that we need to understand that it's not because he doesn't love us. We know from John's account that in verse 5, he says very clearly, Jesus loved Martha and her sister Mary and Lazarus. It's really important to John that we grasp this, that we understand. You see, this is a home, Lazarus, Mary, Martha. This was a home in which Jesus could relax. This is where he could bring his friends. Martha would cook. Mary would sit at his feet and dote on him. It was where he could rest. He loved this family. And this is what this family believed about themselves. And so why the delay? Why isn't he responding Why this silence? This is what Mary and Martha experience. This is what we sometimes experience. It's what the psalmist often describes in the psalms. And, you know, psalms like um, Psalm 13 stand out. How long, Lord? How long? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? So Lazarus is sick. He's dying. It's a problem. It's something only Jesus can resolve. So where is he? Why hasn't he come? Why are we waiting? And now he's dead. He's dead. Lazarus is dead. It's all gone wrong. We're getting a divorce. The bailiffs are coming. The business has collapsed. We're being evicted. My addicted son is now on the streets. You've done all you can do. You've prayed all you can. You've come up to the front. Your small group have gathered round. You've, you've, you've got your friends and family involved. Everybody's helping. You've done everything you can do. Everything and still no breakthrough. And still, Lazarus is dead. Jesus wasn't there by the bedside. He wasn't there at the funeral. He wasn't there at the wake. And then finally, when it's too late, it's too late, he's dead, Jesus comes. By the time he arrives, Lazarus has been dead four days. How do we respond when it's too late? When it's too late? Well, first of all, be absolutely assured of his love. For John, who writes this story up, the question of love, the love of Jesus is really important. Later in this book, John describes himself as the one Jesus loved. Now, he doesn't describe it because he thinks he's unique. He doesn't actually, I don't believe he thinks he's extra special. He describes it as of himself because he's convinced of the love of Jesus. And, and he's convinced so that we can be convinced. So that we can, be, we can believe absolutely that we are loved. Which means that he's in the midst of the problem. God is with us. He is fully in it. He's not standing back watching you. He's actually in the problem. Your idea of the future may be broken. The way you want the future to work out may be shattered. But you can be fully assured that God is there and that he loves you. The second thing is worship. Now Mary, one of the sisters, is deep in grief. 
As John recounts this, she is grieving. There are people around her. She's distraught. She's upset. And when she is told by her sister Martha that Jesus has come, she runs. She runs towards him. She runs and she throws herself at his feet. She's upset. She's incredibly upset. And it says in verse 32, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and she saw him, she fell at his feet and she said, Lord, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. She's venting her feelings. Lord, Lord, if you'd been here, why? Why didn't you do what I thought you should have done? Why? But here she is. She's at the feet of Jesus. She's fallen to the ground. She's at his feet before him. And you know, folks, it's a posture of worship. You don't fall at the feet of someone who you are not surrendered to. You don't fall at the feet of a lesser power. It's a posture of worship. It might be brokenhearted, it's despairing, it's grieving, but Mary is a worshipper. And we know from previous chapters that Mary loved to sit at the feet of Jesus. And later, she is one who is described as uh, breaking an expensive bottle of perfume over the feet of Jesus, and then she dries them with her own hair. You can be a worshipper. You can fall at his feet in worship. All of this while you still have a crisis. Maybe you've lost a child or you've been wrongly accused. You can't pay the bills. In those times, allow your worship to take you to a real place, a messy place. It may be on the floor. It may be at his feet. Everything's a mess. You're a mess. Your face is a mess. Your nose is running. Your hair's a mess. You're on the floor and you're crying out to him, oh God, come, come and do something. I remember a time when Jordan, our our youngest, was um, bullied at school and it was really bad. And honestly, we were in fear for his life because the threats were outside of the school gate. In fact, three of his bullies ended up later on in prison. One put a gun to an old lady's uh, head. So this was dangerous bullying. and, And at one point, Jordan began to talk about wanting to take his life. And I I just despaired. And we decided to take him out of school. And we didn't have the money to pay for sort of full tuition. We could barely uh, get something together to to, to bring in maths and English, somebody to to teach him those. And and we knew he would just scrape by. And his his whole future looked like it was really jeopardized. And I was crying out to God. And at times, I'd be on the floor in worship. It's, Lord, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? And of course, I didn't know what was going to happen. But I was on the floor. In the second book of Samuel, King David has been told that the son born to Bathsheba is going to die. And in 2 Samuel chapter 12, we see David pleading. It says, David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and he spent the nights lying in sackcloth on the ground The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up off the ground, but he refused. He wouldn't eat any food with them. His boy was dying, and David was in rags, pleading, fasting, on the ground. On the ground, crying out before God, because God is God. It doesn't change. God is on the throne. Psalm 51 is thought to be the song that um, David wrote after his son died. The worst had happened, and he writes, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. It's worship. It's surrendered worship. 
Both Mary and King David are surrendered. As I said, we don't fall at the feet of a lesser power. You fall at the feet of the one you're surrendered to. And if you're a worshiper, and if you're in crisis, let your worship be surrender. Surrender to Jesus, Mary's Jesus. No one was like him. No one taught like him. No one healed the sick like he did. No one loved children and gave dignity to women like Jesus did. No one came along sinners like Jesus did or served like he did or embraced us like he did. He walked on water. He calmed the storms. He multiplied food and fed thousands. No one suffered like he did. Embraced humanity like he did. He saved us. No one showed us the Father's love like Jesus did. And this was who Mary worshipped. This is Jesus. This is our Jesus. When everything went wrong, nevertheless, Mary worshipped. And in her worship, she fell at the feet in surrender to Jesus. The third thing is trust. Trust him. Now, Martha actually met Jesus first. Four days had passed and, she, and he had finally arrived. Lazarus is dead. It's too late. And like Mary, Martha exclaims, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But then something changes in her thinking. In verse 22, she says, I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Even now, even now when it's too late, Martha hasn't lost her trust in Jesus We can trust Jesus, even in the waiting, even when everything's gone wrong. Trust is a huge deal. It's a huge deal. It's the core in our lives. Throughout the Psalms, you see the psalmist when in peril, in danger, when everything's lost, they speak of trust. Trust in the Lord. But I trust in you, Lord. God's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. We trust his holy name. In God I trust, I'm not afraid. Again and again. It's the call of the prophets. It's the invitation of the gospels. It's the plea of New Testament teachers and on and on. Proclamation, invitation, declarations, encouragements for us to trust God. Now, it is true, Martha didn't actually have to wait that long. She got the outcome She wanted more than her dreams. Now the outcome we want might not come. The waiting may be for a long, long time. But it is possible to trust and to stay confident in Jesus because Jesus is always doing something. Always doing something. He's asking us to trust. I remember there'd been a terrible accident in Chorley Wood. A little girl, two years old, had fallen into a swimming pool and drowned. And my father was the vicar, he was the parish priest, and he went immediately. The family were a family of unbelievers. They'd never stepped foot in the church. And he was allowed to come in, they welcomed him in, and um, he prayed with them. And then he left the Bible for them to read. And Jeannie Morgan showed up at the church She decided to put her trust in Jesus and later her husband Ken came in and also put his trust in Jesus. The worst had happened. They lost their little girl. And yet in that moment, in the mystery of it all, she put her trust in Jesus. And Jeannie, she's written a couple of books. 
Let the healing begin. Another one, I think it's called Our Hands, His Healing. I think that's what, I can't remember, but it's something along that. It's a, they're remarkable books, but she is an amazing uh, woman of God who, who ministers in the power of the Holy Spirit, has seen many people set free, especially when it comes to deliverance. Mysterious things are going on. And it's hard to give control of, our, of the outcomes to Jesus. My friend, once gay activist, uh, David Bennett, we often have these very real and honest conversations about life and the challenges. And he's very real about his decision to be celibate as a gay man. And he often encourages me in his testimony and his, the way he perseveres through some of the, the challenges that that presents He encourages us in the mystery. There are things we don't understand. And his trust in God is incredibly inspiring. Behind this story of Lazarus, there is mystery. There are things that at face value we don't understand. And yet if you read it, you'll see how the story unfolds. So trust is essential. Trust in God's good and loving nature. Everything he's doing is motivated by love. One of the most remarkable moments in this story, and it's in the whole of the Gospels, is Jesus' response to Mary and those who are grieving. It says this in, in verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. He wept. Those around him saw him weeping. They saw how he was moved. And it's really important to remember that Jesus was fully human, that he was fully feeling and stirred by what was going on. Psychologists tell us that grief is contagious and that actually we all carry levels of grief and that when we come alongside people who are in grief, it is normal for us to get in touch with our own grief and we share in each other's grief. I remember we were... Um, celebrating here Eileen's um, death. Eileen was a wonderful Christian. She was one of our receptionists. She'd been a pastor's wife in our city. And, um, and she died and we held the funeral here. And, and, and as the family processed in with the coffin, they wept loudly. And honestly, there wasn't a dry eye in the room. All of a sudden, our grief uh, came to the surface. Grief for them, but also other grief that we all live with an experience. Jesus shares in our grief, and he was sharing in their grief then. It's also possible that he was anticipating his own death, that he was, in that moment, kind of the anticipation of what he was going to suffer, the separation from God the Father, all the unknowns that was going to happen to him with his death on the cross. But more importantly, what those around him didn't know was that this is God weeping. This is God weeping. Theologian Tom Wright, he says this, when you see Jesus weeping, you are seeing the word who is God weeping. We see in his weeping the love that moves him, love evidently there, in the delay and in the response. God in Jesus weeps with us. He knows the pain, he weeps for us. He's already at work responding. Have no doubt, 
One day you will experience that response. Now in this story, at the right time, the story unfolds dramatically. In verse 38 it says, Jesus once more deeply moved came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looks up and he says, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Wow, an undeniable miracle. I mean, can you imagine being there? I tried to imagine myself being there and actually I was a bit freaked out. The thought of somebody being dead four days and then coming out with all their kind of grave clothes on through a dark hole in a wall. I mean, that is just crazy, isn't it? Lazarus comes out and his body's intact. The grave clothes are on and it's extraordinary. It's not a healing, it's a raising from the dead. Jesus knew what was going to happen. That's why he thanked the Lord before calling Lazarus out. This is what this waiting was going to achieve. It was going to bring greater glory to God. And there was intrinsically, in the delay of this miracle, God's plan unfolding. In that plan, we, we even here today, were his greatest concern. This miracle was going to drive God's perfect timing. You see, in the delay, many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to share in their grief, in the loss of their brother. It says in verse 19, many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. And some of those Jews would be first-hand witnesses of this extraordinary raising of Lazarus. And some of them would have taken that news back to the Pharisees in Jerusalem. This is the miracle that pointed to the divinity of Jesus. Even his opponents couldn't deny it. They were so concerned about it that later on in chapter 12, they talk, the, the, the priests talk about killing Lazarus, putting him to death because the more Lazarus is walking around alive, the more people are going to believe in Jesus. So this is love that's driving perfect timing. And the bigger, bigger picture was about God's love for all of humanity. You see, Jesus waited for Lazarus to die. He waited in order to raise him from the dead. He waited knowing that this miracle would trigger the plotting to kill him. The suffering that he was going to endure on the cross. The death and resurrection that saves us all. In the delay, something important, something absolutely vital is going on. While we wait, while he takes his time, while we feel the pain and the frustration, the yearning, even the anger, the disappointment, know this, he is at work. He's with you in the unresolved. He may not give you the answers that you want. He may not give you the answer in the timing that you want. And so what do we do? We worship. We keep on worshipping. Let your worship be real. Maybe it's surrendered, it's on the floor, it's messy, but it's real worship. And we trust. He's inviting us on a journey of trust because he's here. He is working a plan. His timing is driven by love. 
I grew up singing a little song. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Do you remember it? Some of you are my age. Well, it stuck in my mind. It stayed with me. It's never left me. When he waits, when he delays, when he takes too long, we can still trust him. And folks, one day, one day we will understand. In this story, John has given us lots of detail. Detail so that we can understand. From the detail, we get a sense of why Jesus delayed, why he stayed away. And more importantly, we see the why, that we see his heart. We see what drives him. We see Jesus waited because he loves us. And it's love that took its time. This story with all the human experience of grief and loss and disappointment, if we look into the story, we see the why. And we see that it's always love that is motivating. It's motivating Jesus. And that he's so deeply involved, he's affected by our condition. This seemingly endless wait is actually love. It may take its time, it may be frustrating, but his love is always there and always on time. Know that he's with you, know that he's at work. You can worship, you can trust. In the end, because of his great love, he is returning, he's coming. Every tear will be wiped. Susie reminded us of this last week. Justice will roll and mercy like a river. There's going to be a happy ending and it's on its way. Christ will return and all things will be put right. If you're hungry, if you're desperate, if you're waiting, come, come, come as you are, come in the mess. You can worship him, you can trust him.